When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Even though E.T. contains a fantasy premise driven by filmmaking wizardry and groundbreaking visual effects, its opulent orchestral film score succeeds because of the story's emotional honesty. This is The Soundtrack Show. kind of windy thing well, before the cut, which would lead the, the cut. Well, it? that's why E.T. turns... If the, if the when John Williams saw E.T., you know, he was really happy with the film. And I can tell when John's happy with the film because we don't have a lot of musical discussions. You know, he already has themes running through his, his mind. Just so you know, we added a lot of stars at the beginning of the movie before the camera pans down to the forest. And I remember that I left him alone, and one day he called me and said, I want to play you some of the stuff on the piano. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this is our second look and listen to the score for E.T. the Extraterrestrial, a film from 1982 by Universal Pictures, written by Melissa Matheson, directed and conceived by Steven Spielberg, with a film score by John Williams. In the last episode, we looked at E.T. as a whole from the top down, its conception, its execution, and its emotional resonance. But from here on out, we're going to start in on the finer details of this movie classic, and by doing so, we'll discover just why E.T. as a whole is greater than merely the sum of its parts, score included. We'll take it from the top of the movie and work our way through the musical and emotional magic. But first, a couple of things that I want us to keep fresh in our minds. In the last episode... I gave four reasons why I believe E.T. is such a classic film, containing one of the greatest film scores of all time. Reason one is that it is very cinematic. We'll explore that right at the very beginning. I also gave a second reason. This movie is deeply personal. We'll discover that very early on in the movie as well. Reason three is that the movie has a very music-forward director at the helm, which we will also continue to discuss. Reason four is intertextuality. Oh, are we going to get some great examples of that? But I'd like to add a fifth reason to this discussion, and here it is. Reason five for why E.T. is such a classic. Flawless execution. To explain what I mean by this, I think it's very important for all of us, as fans of this or any other movie, to know that when a movie is this good, it's because... So many things have gone right, which is tough. I mean, think about it. Oftentimes, when just one thing falls down, it can really affect the overall quality of the movie. But everything seems to have gone right with E.T. The script, the art direction, the costumes, the lighting, successful shoot day after successful shoot day, which, by the way, things always go sideways while you're shooting, but they were able to make their days and capture magic. And then there's everything that happens in post-production. The picture editing, the visual effects, the sound design, and of course, the music. With E.T., everything was firing on all cylinders, including what I think absolutely makes the movie. The casting. This movie includes jaw-dropping, remarkable performances from a lead cast of children. I think it's important to acknowledge this, even in a show about the film's music, because truly... E.T. features what may be the greatest performances from child actors ever captured on celluloid. Drew Barrymore, Robert McNaughton, 
and in particular, Henry Thomas as Elliot, deliver performances that, and I'm really taking nothing away from the Goonies or Stand By Me here, that have such a huge emotional range that they have to deliver for performers that young. You know, it occurs to me that this is why the music hits us so hard. To explain, I want to illustrate this point with one of my favorite pieces of film music, which happens to be from The Empire Strikes Back. Yoda's theme, which conveniently enough we're going to talk about with E.T. But Yoda's theme is one of the most lyrical and gorgeous pieces of symphonic music I've ever heard for the silver screen. And yet, Yoda's theme doesn't bring me to the verge of tears every single time the way E.T. does. Well, why is that? Especially considering the musical similarities to the flying theme in E.T. to Yoda's theme, which we'll discuss in a bit. I would argue that it's because of the following. In spite of an out-of-this-world story premise, in spite of cutting-edge visuals and lush orchestral music, the flawless execution of E.T. is rooted in total emotional honesty. There's not one second of this movie where I don't believe those kids when they're on screen. It feels so real. Their performances are a slice of childhood just seemingly captured like a documentary. And it's filled with difficult emotion that seems to barely break the surface. They're always keeping it under wraps as the family copes with separation and divorce. But it's the arrival of E.T. and in lockstep with that arrival, the film score by John Williams that continually breaks that emotional surface. E.T. and the film score is when our characters get real. And in this way, the music serves as a much needed emotional release driven by youthful performances that make our hearts swell to the point of bursting. We will hear, as we go through E.T., not only how the music is used brilliantly to tell the film's story, but also how, in this film in particular, that effect is emotionally amplified by its flawless execution. We're going to start at the beginning and move forward through the story to hear it unfold. My hope is that in this way, we will achieve a better understanding of not only how this score is structured, but exactly why it brings us to tears every single time. And now for a brief intermission. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We return now to the soundtrack show. And we eventually get into this key with this one. I loved it. It was great. And I could not wait for the scoring session. I could not wait for the day he scored. E.T. opens on a silent MCA Universal logo, and all fades to black. As the opening title appears, we hear an eerie, bowed gong, immediately setting a mysterious mood as the credits slowly fade in and out on screen. A mysterious, even ominous beginning to our story. Then, as we covered in the last episode, a sky full of stars as we hear the call theme on solo flute twice. As we discover the spaceship in the forest, the orchestra moves in octaves through minor intervals, giving us a dread-inspiring, almost gothic horror vibe. This is a first statement of what Mike Mattesino calls the alien creature theme, which will show up again later in the film. The eerie sounds of movement and critters through the forest reinforce this mysterious alien feeling. And then we see and hear little creatures in silhouette. 
As we go into the spaceship's interior, the orchestra's strings drip with a portamento or slide to give us an eerie, alien vibe. An owl hoots, and everything stops. Their hearts light up in red, which is how they seem to communicate with each other, almost signaling that they'll soon need to depart. We then cut to a lone alien examining what looks like a baby tree with great care. This one lone extraterrestrial wanders through giant redwoods by himself. The orchestra gives us their towering, majestic grandeur. As the alien makes its way to a vista, where he sees, well, us, suburbia. The music up to this point has been mysterious, but also somewhat enchanting, even religious in a way. But here, the mood is broken, as giant Chevy ORVs come roaring into frame with their headlights. They are like frightening monsters, and the sound effects editors even cut in the sounds of animal growls as the vehicles pull up to reinforce this. This is where we are seemingly introduced to our story's villain, who is credited as being named Keys. Why? Because throughout most of the film, he is only shot from the chest down, as most adults other than the mom are, and he is given a signature look and sound based on the jingling key ring at his waist. And more importantly to our discussion, we're given a villainous theme, first on contrabassoon, which we'll call the Keys theme. And it goes like this. What's so interesting here is that it starts with a rhythmic pattern that goes like this. Huh. Well, in the last episode, we talked a lot about intertextuality, and this is, I think, a wonderful example. While Williams may or may not be conscious of any of what I'm about to say, though I would argue he most likely was, this rhythmic pattern, bump ba dum bump bum bump and much of the melodic content of this theme that we're about to hear, does reference some of his bigger film scores from recent years leading up to E.T., this, to my ear anyway, bum ba dum bum bum bum, is the same rhythmic pattern, only a bit slower, as found in William's theme from Superman just three years prior. Bum ba dum bum 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 A familiar rhythmic signature for Williams. What it means for this story? Well, probably not much, except that it's familiar to us. But taken with the melodic intervals, we are able to quickly understand what he's going for here. After this melodic pattern, dun dum bum 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 played on the main tonic note, or the one, it jumps up a fifth. That's right just like the call theme, and just like the flying theme, or Star Wars, or 2001. This melody, as we stated about almost all of the thematic melodies in this movie, starts with a familiar fifth. Only this time, as it goes down, it lands on the minor third. then the leading tone, which is a half step below the one, or the tonic, then a flat six. Then it jumps up a fifth interval again from the flat six up to the minor third. Depending on what happens next, sometimes it goes down to here, sometimes it goes up to here. But this is really, really interesting. Huh. Hmm. I wonder what other bad guy theme in recent years had such similar harmonic and melodic content. Hmm. 
basically what we have here is a one minor chord and then a flat sixth minor chord. Just like the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back. What kind of effect does this have on us, the audience? Well, if the bright headlights, the exhaust pipes, the scary men in flashlights stomping through puddles and other visual and sound effects cues didn't do it for us, this music will certainly solidify in our minds very quickly that these are the villains, the bad guys. It's an intertextual Williams trope at this point, after Star Wars, Superman, Empire Strikes Back, etc. We know immediately what Spielberg and Williams are trying to tell us here. Again, this opening is a shadow play a sequence using cinematic techniques, no dialogue, to tell us a very clear story very quickly. This sequence continues on into a chase where the men with flashlights are after the lone alien. What's amazing to think about is that Spielberg and Williams have, in just the first few minutes of this movie, set up mystery, suspense, an eerie yet calmly spiritual alien presence, and have then immediately made us empathize and even pity the aliens as one of them runs terrified through the forest. We're only a few minutes into the movie. And as the alien runs away, the keys theme is played loudly in the brass. Sounding even more like the Imperial March. Ultimately, E.T., as we will come to know him, misses his ride and is left alone, abandoned, and hiding in the woods from his terrifying pursuers. As this happens, we hear the call theme again, thus bookending this whole sequence with the call being associated with the alien arrival at first, but now the call is happening while we're looking down upon suburbia. Perhaps this will be where our lost alien seeks refuge? Before we can think about it, the men with flashlights descend upon the position where we just saw E.T., and fruitlessly search for the alien who is now gone. As they do, the whole opening sequence closes out with the keys theme again, fading out into a suburban home. Strictly speaking, this whole opening sequence is so bold and stylized that it feels more like we're watching the premiere of Stravinsky's Ride of Spring at the Ballet Russe in 1917 Paris than we are watching a Spielberg movie in 1982. I mean, don't get me wrong. The almost wordless opening of Raiders, the suspense of Close Encounters opening in the desert, the opening of Jaws even, match what he's doing here in terms of overall pacing and story structure. But this is next-level fantasy storytelling, as we're barely even looking at characters. It's a story told almost entirely with light and shadows and music. Wholly unfamiliar, with only the music as an anchor to inform us how to feel. Very cinematic. What follows next is a wonderful contrast. We as an audience are dropped right into real life, something that even the movie will call it later in the script. We go into the interior of a 1980s house where we see some teenagers playing Dungeons and Dragons at a kitchen table. I'm just trying to help you out, man. Don't be so cranky. How about throwing a spell over the pizza man? Where's that pizza man? Yeah, huh? Well, I'm ready to play now, you guys. We're in the middle, Elliot. Can't you join any universe in the middle? A nice detail that writer Melissa Matheson picked up by spending time with Harrison Ford's son, Willard. While the older kids are playing, a younger sibling is trying to get in on the game. And the mom is next to them doing the dishes. No sign of a dad or domestic partner anywhere, just the single parent. And notice that throughout this scene, other than a distant radio in the background, there's no John Williams music. What we are immediately given with this contrast is a musical association with something other than our reality. We're subtly setting up a rule here at the top of the film. The fantastic versus the suburban reality. As we've discussed in previous episodes of the soundtrack show, it's just as important to notice where the music does not play as it is to discuss where it does. Interesting to note how its absence here adds credibility to this slice of 1980s life. It feels real. 
As Elliot goes to get the pizza delivery from the driveway, he hears a noise off screen. Harvey! A distant Papa Umau Mau on the radio plays against any suspense horror vibes here that might creep in too strongly. It keeps the scene light. Besides, we already have a hunch about what may happen here, and we delight in watching how it unfolds. Still, we feel some of Elliot's fears. The distant radio fades and gives away to chirping crickets. He's alone with who knows what in the yard late at night. As he throws the ball into an eerily lit shed, there's no music. No suspense, no anything. And an opportunity for music when the ball inexplicably comes back to him is also avoided. No music as Elliot, scared, runs back into the house to tell everyone what just happened. And of course he warns them all, do not go outside. And they of course do the exact opposite and descend upon the yard. Stop now, you guys stay right here. You stay here, Mom, we'll check it out. As they do, we get a nice intertextual nod to the Twilight Zone. A TV series that ran for five seasons from 1959 to 1964 and was in heavy syndication on television by the early 80s. By having the older, cynical boys jokingly hum this theme as they go searching for Elliot's most likely imagined boogeyman in the backyard, we are further getting a sense that this is a familiar reality. Certainly nothing like what you would see on TV. Such imagination is openly mocked here. Even as we, the audience, know that it just happened up in the Redwoods not too far away, mere minutes before. The search is a bust. The kids all go back inside. And Elliot is not taken seriously. But as they leave, we see E.T.'s hands and hear his frightened breathing coming out of the shed. Again, no music. Later that night, a mundane ticking clock inside keeps us in our suburban reality. But again, Elliot hears noises coming from outside. While there's no thematic material here, we do hear more of that bowed gong as creepy underscore, almost adding tonal sound design to this mysterious sequence as Elliot searches in the dark for the source of the noise. When he finally does see E.T., and both characters scream in fright, the camera and the editing become incredibly stylized, yet there's still no music. We get one, two, Three, four, five shots at Elliot screaming as he reels from seeing E.T. Then a reverse shot, and then a final tracking shot away from Elliot as E.T. runs away. All of this with no music. It's not until Elliot realizes what just happened, and what he just saw, that the music does kick in. The worlds are colliding. Fantasy has now met with suburban reality. We immediately cut to the next morning, and the cue that we're treated to is fascinating. Since we don't really know Elliot yet, or the character's true intentions, we are given a cue that almost hints at being the Keys theme, as Elliot leaves home on his bike, we assume to go out and search for the creature. In fact, not only does it sound a bit menacing like the Keys theme, but the visual of the bicycle mixed with the Q's orchestration, to me, reminds me a bit of Almira Gulch slash the Wicked Witch stick at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz. But I digress. Is Elliot after E.T. here? What does he want with him? What are his intentions? Is he like Keys? Is he a future version of Keys? What's interesting here is the ambiguity. But it slowly melts away as we see him holding a bag of candy and we hear, for the first time, a theme that Mike Mattesino calls the suburbia theme. Here's a Mattesino quote from the La La Land Records release, quote, 
This cue accompanies Elliot's search for the strange creature glimpsed in his backyard the previous evening. Williams utilizes a variation of the keys theme in an upper register, portraying Elliot like a ten-year-old soldier heading off to battle on his bicycle. It's as if he's a younger version of Keys, a link later reinforced when the lead investigator tells the boy, he came to me too, I've been wishing for this since I was ten years old. As Elliot sprinkles Reese's pieces around the forest clearing, his whistling mingling with that of the birds, Williams introduces a melody that might be identified as a suburbia or perhaps a bicycle theme, as it's used when wheels remain on terra firma. It projects a feeling of everyday life, with upward leaps capturing every person's desire to grow, change, or move on to bigger things. Yet it's never too far from the Keys theme, which overlays the new theme's first statements. Keys theme, again on contrabassoon, is heard as Elliot spots the investigator nearby, with the bicycle theme returning as the boy pedals away." End quote. And by the way, after the first dip down a half-step, this theme also features an interval up a perfect fifth. There it is again. That's now four themes by my count that begin with a perfect fifth in E.T. Also, I love the descending nature of this piece, yet the interval leaps keep going up, so it's kind of got this opposite motion. It's sinking down, yet pushing up even higher. Lydian there, but then it drops to here, but then makes a huge, huge leap right there. The desire for flight while being stuck on the ground. When we return to the home interior at dinner that night, the mood is tense. It's not that we don't believe you, honey. Well, it was real, I swear. It's clear that Elliot has tried to tell his family about what he saw, and that didn't go over very well. And we learn about what's really going on with this family. After Elliot says this, Dad would believe me. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. Whoops. Mom didn't know that Dad was in Mexico with Sally. (sighs) Every person in this family is managing some kind of emotional pain and dealing with it differently. Gertie is a bit young and is just kind of confused. Where's Mexico? Elliot feels totally isolated and alone. Notice, we see all of Mike's friends in the movie, but Elliot doesn't really have any close friends. Well, not yet. And Mike is playing the role of protector and peacekeeper, a white knight for his mom. I'm gonna kill you. And the mom, Mary? What is she feeling? (laughs) Absolute heartbreak, I imagine. What's the matter, Mom? Mexico. This whole exchange is musicless, and it's just awkward. It just hurts. Forgive me for indulging in a personal story, but um, I wasn't much older than Elliot when my own parents got divorced. It was just me, my mom, and my older brother, and I clearly remember pedaling home on my bike from junior high and looking up at my house with dread before I took a deep breath and went through the front door. I knew that by walking in, especially during those dark first days when the separation was new, I would have to face what I'd been avoiding all day, my own pain, and the pain of my brother and mother. So I relate to the cold reality of Elliot's world here, as I'm sure many of you listeners do as well. When all the friends are gone, and all is quiet, and it's just the three of them. At the end of the scene, after Mom gets upset, Elliot goes and starts washing his dinner plate in the sink. The camera moves to a POV outside the kitchen window, focused on Elliot. And as steam rises from the sink and surrounds him, like a hellish prison of his own pain, he gazes up to the heavens, and Williams gives us the call, from Elliot's point of view, for the first time. We transition to Elliot keeping guard late at night, and we're treated to a new theme, which is a collection of intervolic leaps that feels somewhat mysterious, yet also somewhat neutral. And eerie music accompanies the first meeting of E.T. and Elliot. 
This collection of 10 notes in this theme, by the way, will show up several times throughout the film as a bit of lingering suspense or as a curiosity. What's important about this music to me, however, is its charming and very sweet payoff in the next scene. Eventually, Elliot lures E.T. into the house with Reese's pieces, and we hear the call once again. And to warm our hearts a bit, we're treated to the sounds of this mysterious alien doing something very relatable, almost cute. Off screen, we hear him munching on the candy that Elliot is setting out for him. Once E.T. is lured to the relative safety of Elliot's room, the music gives way to a whimsical, almost comedic, bouncy pizzicato underscore. Until the two start connecting for the first time by visually communicating with each other. When this happens, and they're first kind of checking each other out, Williams gives us the sweetest musical cue just a solo harp, playing a new theme which we'll call, as Mattesino does, the friendship theme. And wouldn't you know it, it also begins with a perfect fifth. our fifth theme to open with this perfect fifth. And this theme will be present throughout much of the movie as their friendship grows. Towards the end of the scene, E.T. gets tired as he's been on the run for a couple of days. As he gets sleepy, Elliot immediately gets sleepy. When we see E.T.'s eyes start to shut, the strings join the harp and they slide down to a resolution like a gentle, rocking lullaby. This is the beginning of the pair's telepathic connection. Elliot feels what E.T. feels. But more than that, I also like to think that as Spielberg lingers on the last shot of Elliot falling fast asleep in the recliner, with E.T. looking at him peacefully, that perhaps Elliot's quick slide into a deep sleep is because of a deeper inner peace. He's no longer feeling alone. And as he says later in the movie, he came to me, he chose me. Elliot feels special, and maybe even feels a little relief after all of life's rejection. Meanwhile, in the redwood forest nearby, Keyes and his crew continue to search for E.T. The Keyes theme plays again, underpinning the danger that E.T. is in. But what does Keyes find? Reese's Pieces candy. We see a hand pick them up off of a giant leaf and we hear off-camera the sound of Keys eating one himself. The first sign, delivered by a sound effect, that perhaps Keys isn't so different from Elliot or E.T. after all. Perhaps this is some foreshadowing of relatable humanity in this mysterious figure that we have yet to see. The next morning, when E.T. and Elliot awake, and Elliot pretends to be sick so that he can stay home, the friendship between the boy and the extraterrestrial truly begins to form. And as it does, Williams starts to give us hints at the theme that will eventually see these two soaring across the sky. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. We're going to hear how intertextuality with the 1980s and multiple pop culture references really come into play. As if Elliot has been just as affected by Star Wars, Jaws, and other mega-hit movies of the day as we have, sitting in the audience. This hyper-awareness adds even more credibility to the story of E.T., as if we in our real world are having our fantasies become real. Coke. See? We drink it. It's, um, it's a drink. You know, food. These are toys. These are little men. This is Greedo, and then this is Hammerhead. Once Mom leaves for work, Elliot starts showing off his world to E.T., 
he shows him his Star Wars toys. But also, in a not-so-subtle nod to Jaws, shows him a shark head eating fish that are swimming around a TIE fighter in a little fishbowl. Look, fish. The fish eat the fish food, and the shark eats the fish. But nobody eats a shark. E.T. just slowly takes in all of the childlike human fantasies with patience and a calm curiosity. What's interesting here is that though the music for this scene works beautifully, this cue was actually written for a scene much later in the film. You can hear it, one for one, when Elliot is saying goodbye to E.T. after he is flatlined and is seemingly gone. Originally, the music for this scene sounded like this. It starts with a mysterious ten-note theme from when Elliot was waiting for E.T. outside the night before, as E.T. slowly walks forward at Elliot's request, but then goes into the friendship theme on harp here. with some trilling strings in anticipation of how this meeting may or may not go. I've taken the liberty of trying to re-edit this music back into the scene. Here is how the scene may have sounded had they used this music cue as originally intended. It's not as heartwarming, not as quickly trusting as the other cue. Hey! Hey, wait a second! No! You don't need her! And is actually still somewhat alien with the portamento strings way up top. Perhaps this is why Spielberg chose to replace it with the cue from later in the film. And it's hard to argue with the choice, as it is such a beautiful classic scene the way that we saw it. Coke! See? We drank it! It's a, it's a drink, you know, food. These are toys, these are little men. One byproduct of this choice, however, is that instead of hearing the call theme, as originally written by Williams, we get the flying theme earlier in the film than Williams originally intended. 
when E.T. puts a toy car in his mouth, signaling that he's hungry. This is a car. We, this is what we get around in. See? Car. Hey! Hey, wait a second! No! You don't eat them. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. As we mentioned in the last episode, John Williams' first intended hint at the flying theme was meant to arrive when E.T. levitates the toy balls in the air for the kids, so that he may show them the solar system and where he's from. So, because he used this other piece, we get introduced to the flying theme a bit earlier than was intended. But again, hard to argue with the results due to such a technicality. I mean, worrying about that is a bit of the tail wagging the dog. And you know what? In a way, it makes the cue feel familiar when we hear it again later, which has its own heartwarming or heartbreaking effect. There are so many people to see, so many people you can check upon and add to your collection. Eventually, older brother Mike comes home from school in his football pads. And here's one fun note. He's singing Accidents Will Happen by Elvis Costello. But they keep hanging on. And when he swears absolute power to Elliot so that he can see his big secret, Mike gives an intertextual impression of another famous alien moments before meeting E.T. Okay, they're closed. I'm just gonna kill you. Okay, uh, swear it one more time. I have absolute, have absolute power. Yes. <laughs> this moment, improvised by actor Robert McNaughton at the suggestion from Henry Thomas, got a huge laugh in the theater when I was a kid, and it started my friends and me on a journey to doing the perfect Yoda impression on the playground. It was so relatable to my life as a child. Again, these characters' understanding of 80s pop culture making E.T.'s reveal to Mike feel that much more real to us as the audience. So later, when that documentary-style reality is broken with film score, and Mike, Gertie, and Elliot surround E.T. in the closet after a hilarious screaming match between Gertie and E.T., we don't question it for a second when Williams gives us lush, trilling strings, arpeggios on Celeste like a child's lullaby with a harp playing a very sentimental version of the friendship theme, even when it goes soaring on clarinet. We are fully along for the ride here, and we're swept up in the magic. And, just like the kids on screen going through a painful time in their family life, we want this friendship. We want to believe. After this scene, yet again we cut to the hillside, and we get another intertextual nod to Jaws, a dolly zoom shot over suburbia, like the one we see on Chief Brody when he sees the shark attack on the beach, with a camera lens jumping into frame just to complete the gag. all scored by the Keys theme. These scientists are relentlessly chasing E.T. day and night, and they're upping their techniques in order to find him. The scene that follows that is one that we played in our first E.T. episode, where we hear the first intended outline of the flying theme. E.T. shows his telekinetic ability to the kids for the first time and levitates the toy balls in imitation of our solar system. But this moment is interrupted by Elliot screaming. Ah! He, and E.T. along with him as he puts his hand on Elliot's shoulder, is frightened. They are aware that their pursuers are just outside the house. Wait, what is it? I don't know. Something scary. We hear the keys theme again. The threat is getting closer. At the end of the night, however, as E.T. is teaching himself how to read and speak English, he notices the dead flowers. E.T. uses his telekinetic ability again to bring the flowers back to life. This foreshadowing closes the evening's events with hope 
and we hear both the flying theme and the call theme. The next day, Elliot has to go to school, and E.T. stays home alone. The results are interesting. It's a long sequence with charming music where E.T. gets drunk on beer that he finds in the fridge, and therefore Elliot gets drunk while he's at school. But more importantly, E.T. hatches a plan to use household devices to build a crude interplanetary communicator so that he may finally phone home. As the children realize what E.T.'s plan is, after the shock of hearing him speak for the first time, we hear the call theme. E.T. They realize he wants to call other extraterrestrials. And when that thought lands with the kids, we hear for the first time since the beginning of the movie, the alien motif. again by the call. A few other things happened that night, too. We realize, for one, that E.T. may be getting sick. Mike is the first one to notice. doesn't look too good anymore. Don't say that. We're fine. How, what's all this we stuff? You say we all the time now. Really, Elite, I think you might be getting kind look, of sick. Look, he's fine, Mike. Okay, okay. Forget I mentioned it. Grab that fuzz buster. And we realize as well that Keyes and his gang are on to the fact that the Taylor children are sheltering an extraterrestrial right there in that house. It seems suddenly that making this intergalactic phone call is urgent, as one way or another, they're running out of time. So the children form a plan for Halloween night. Now you're going as a ghost, you promised. I'm only pretending I'm going as a cowgirl. Okay, now you know the plans by heart, don't you? Meet you at the lookout. At the lookout. I'm not stupid, you know. And there's a lot for them to navigate in order to get out of the house. E.T. doubles for Gertie in a ghost costume, who will then meet up with them up the hill with a bicycle. But first, before any of that happens, we get the most famous intertextual reference of this entire movie. As E.T., in his ghost costume disguise, goes out for Halloween night trick-or-treating just before sunset, he sees someone in a Yoda costume and starts saying, Home, home, home. And when he does... John Williams playfully uses Yoda's musical theme from The Empire Strikes Back here. I got a Yoda costume and didn't tell George Lucas I was doing this and dressed someone up as Yoda. And I just had this idea, it'd be really fun, that as as E.T. walks by, Yoda's going in the other direction, but E.T. recognizes Yoda. Because, of course, you know, the galaxy is a rather small place among filmmakers. I hadn't seen E.T. finished, and when we finally finished, it had a screen up here for ILM. Well, Steve had warned me that there was something special in it for me, and so suddenly Yoda showed up in the film. Everybody in the audience cheered, of course, because it's an ILM screen, but I really loved it. I mean, I was amazed and flattered, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very funny moment. I just remember George was sitting right next to me, and when Yoda came on, the screen, George gave me a little nudge with his arm. I guess it's his way of saying that was cool. Now, what's amazing about this is not only that E.T. and Yoda draw similar comparisons, both are small, both are puppets, but the Yoda theme itself is actually very similar musically to E.T.'s flying theme and the call theme. Yoda's theme also opens with a perfect fifth. But instead of going up, it goes down. But just like the call theme and the flying theme, Yoda's theme also goes up a step in a pseudo-modulation to a new major key.
And it even keeps the root of the original chord in the bass, just like the call does. Even though this is an intertextual nod to The Empire Strikes Back, a movie that debuted just two years prior to E.T., this music cue also serves as yet another legitimate statement, though it's a Yoda-esque variation, of the call and or flying theme, and is kind of a preparation for what's about to happen next. And you know what it is. The movie's first climactic emotional spike, and one of the most famous scenes in movie and movie music history. When we meet Gertie up the hill with the bicycle, we're still kind of hearing a variation on Yoda as Elliot asks Mike and Gertie for help to cover for him. Be back one hour after sunset, no later. I'll try as fast as I can, Mike. You gotta cover me. Well, come on. This fades into those dread-inspiring eighth notes. as E.T. and Elliot pedal off into the woods, right when the sun is starting to go down. Now, we all know what's coming. But I just want to lay it all out for us. Up to this point, we've dealt with a broken home, a lost alien, and stress coming at us at every angle, keeping E.T. a secret from mom, navigating a telepathic connection while trying to go to school, mounting continuous pressure from a scary force that is hot in pursuit, a friend who potentially is going to get sick, and the horrible fear of going out alone at night, the dangers that may be encountered, and the ever-present feeling of being in deep trouble even for doing what you know in your heart is right. But then, in spite of all of that, in spite of the mounting pressure, in spite of the weariness of navigating extraordinary circumstances on top of your difficult childhood realities, for one glorious moment, we are given this. Unfiltered musical elation. And even an hour in, it takes us by surprise, just like Elliot. This is the highest of highs, and we've earned it. Joy experienced with undeniable purity. As they crash to earth, we are left with our breath taken away. As E.T. and Elliot go about setting up their communicator, we as the audience get the feeling that the emotion that this movie is going to evoke in us has just begun. In our final episode on the music of E.T., we'll look at a frightening chapter in our story and talk about how Williams, Spielberg, and the cast construct it. We'll discuss the lasting impact of E.T., and its music, and we'll take one last listen to the score as E.T. returns home. Thank you. Thank you.